Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. An atomic bomb breaks loose from a mounting shackle in a B-47 jet over Florence, South Carolina. Plummets to earth, causing a sensational freak accident. There was near disaster for those within range of the TNT, that is the bomb's trigger. Six were injured. The home of Walter Gregg was turned into a shambles. In the Gregg yard, the blast tore a 35-foot deep crater. But despite the havoc, authorities emphasized the explosion was not a nuclear blast. The bomb was not assembled for firing, standard procedure during transportation. No accident could make it explode, and there was no fission, no radioactive fission products revealed as the Air Force scoured the area in an intensive search for any information of value following the first accident of its kind in history. Well, as they say, we all make mistakes. We can usually blame them on computers or mechanical failures, even though there is almost always a human element lurking in there somewhere. And hopefully, for that person or persons, that error or oversight is hiding so deep in the weeds that no one ever finds out. And sometimes, the truth of who did it and how becomes revealed. Such as in the case of the Mars Bluff incident. In the spring of 1958, the U.S. Air Force accidentally dropped a 7,600-pound Mark VI hydrogen bomb loaded with explosives in the backyard of a South Carolina family farmhouse. For a short while, the incident dominated national and then international news, until about two weeks later when the media moved on to other stories. And the Air Force doesn't like to talk about it, obviously. It's not the kind of thing that instills confidence in our military and its commanders. And confidence can sometimes be in short supply, as we all know. Although Mars Bluff is our lead story, there have been many other nuclear mishaps. According to a 1981 Department of Defense report, there were no less than 32 nuclear accidents attributed to the U.S. military, many involving loss of life, between 1950 and 1980. Most of these involved U.S. military aircraft incidents taking place on domestic soil. Many of these took place in the 50s, but not all. There have been a number of improvements since the 50s and early 60s, which have reduced the number of incidents. For instance, we no longer keep nuclear-armed planes in the air at all times and the planes that carry nuclear devices have been improved and modernized. In addition to that, the U.S. Air Force isn't the only nuclear-armed sector of our military, which it used to be. Two U.S. nuclear submarines were also lost in 1963 and 1968, the USS Thresher and the USS Scorpion, respectively. And a number of books and documentaries exist that purport to tell that story. 
there is not a lot of information available on nuclear accidents which have occurred between 1980 and now. However, freedom of information requests have been successful in digging up some very interesting information. The military uses the term broken arrow to refer to an accident that involves nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons components. So if you're searching yourself, that's a good place to start. The true story of the Mars Bluff incident is coming up next. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we're taking a little trip back into history, to the spring of 1958. The place? Florence County, South Carolina. The community of Mars Bluff. As peaceful a little place to live as ever could be. You can almost smell Aunt B's peach pie cooling off on the windowsill, and hear Opie and the kids playing in the backyard. It was a traditional farmhouse with an attached shed and a few acres owned by railroad conductor Walter Gregg. The whole family was home that day. It was 3 p.m. on Tuesday, March 11, 1958. The kids had just gotten off the bus a little while ago. The mom, Effie Gregg, was sitting on the front porch sewing as her two daughters, Frances and Helen, played with their cousin, Ella Davies. Like many women of that time, Effie sewed all her own dresses, and the girls too, and she was known far and wide for the work she did. In the shed, Walter Gregg and his son were making benches in Gregg's workshop. The girls had decided not to play in the playhouse directly behind the house, and were now playing on the side of the house, right about the time Walter and Walter Jr. heard the sound of a large plane flying high above their neighborhood. And it was a large plane. 15,000 feet above Florence, South Carolina, at 3.53 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a B-47E, flight number 876, having departed Hunter Air Force Base in Savannah, Georgia, en route to Bruntingthorpe Air Base, England, with three other aircraft, which were part of the Strategic Air Command 8th Bomb Wing, was part of a mission known as Operation Snow Flurry. It was part of a nuclear weapons exercise, and the maneuver was to include a mid-air refueling drill off Canada's east coast in addition to a practice bombing run over England. The four planes were competing to see which crew would signal ground control with mission accomplished first. This flight was pressed for time, and they had suffered some delays. Two specialists had taken more than an hour to wrestle the bomb into its harness, and they had experienced problems setting the steel locking pin into place. Those two had to call in a system supervisor with more experience. He ordered the bomb manually lifted up so that the pin could be set in place. Use of a hammer was required to seat the pin. Tell me that wouldn't make you a little nervous if you were behind that hammer. The pin release mechanism was supposed to be checked at this point prior to takeoff. It was the policy at that time that the pin be released before takeoff. Then, once the aircraft gained an altitude of 5,000 feet, the pin was to be reset until drop time, at which time the pin would be pulled. In this flight, documents were shown years later indicating that the release mechanism was not checked again before takeoff. According to the official Armed Forces explanation, the plane's commander, Captain Earl Kohler, aged 36, saw a light flash on his instrument panel. This was a warning, and an urgent one, 
the electrical bomb-locking system was malfunctioning. An unarmed nuclear bomb was being carried in the plane's bomb bay, and the warning light indicated that something was malfunctioning in the single shackle that was designed to hold and, when activated, release the Mark VI 30-kiloton bomb through the bomb bay doors when opened. The Mark VI, and soon after, the Mark 17, and its cousin, the Mark 24, were the first mass-produced hydrogen bombs built in the U.S. They had entered service in 1954, having been the brainchild of the Los Alamos scientists, and were the first in a long row of improvements. The Mark 17 was 24 feet, 8 inches long, and 61 inches in diameter, meaning, in layman's terms, you couldn't wrap your arms around it. The Mark 17 had a yield of 15 megatons of TNT, designed to explode at impact, and by doing so, detonate its nuclear capability. When fully armed, these hydrogen bombs would clear all structures within 10 miles in any direction from its epicenter. Trees, houses, buildings, everything. Because these bombs were so large, only certain planes could carry them. And many types of large planes were used up until the development of the B-52, which proved to be much safer than the earlier models. The bomb itself, as it hung in the carriage, was loaded with TNT. A nuclear-armed plutonium device waited close to it in the plane, ready to be added or inserted when orders were given. There was a hole or pit located on the bomb into which the nuclear rod would be inserted. Just months earlier, on May 27, 1957, a Mark 17 was unintentionally jettisoned from a B-36 just south of Albuquerque, New Mexico, falling through unopened bomb bay doors and blasting a crater 25 feet in diameter and 12 feet deep, spreading radioactive contamination and debris over a mile-wide area. Depending on the make of the bomb, just a TNT blast alone might or might not contain radioactive material. So here we are 15,000 feet above the Palmetto State, and the red light is flashing on the dashboard. That's not a good sign for the captain and crew, as they all know that a 24,000-pound bomb, which they call the pig, is not happy with the arm which is holding it. The Air Force explanation continues. Navigator Bruce Kolka unbuckled his seat and shoulder harness, lifted himself up from his seat in the tight nose of the plane, opened a hatch, and squeezed into the floodlighted bomb bay. This had to have been a very nerve-wracking moment, to say the least. Something was malfunctioning. If that bomb dropped from the bracket which held it, it would go right through the bomb bay doors, and there was a good chance it would take him with it. This moment no doubt served as the inspiration for the scene in Stanley Kubrick's 1964 Cold War movie Dr. Strangelove, in which the actor, Slim Pickens, playing Dr. King Kong, the cowboy-style navigator of a B-46, has to straddle an H-bomb in order to release it over Russia, the locking mechanism having been stuck. It releases while Kong is still straddling it, and down it goes toward its intended target with the doctor aboard. Viewers will never forget his waving his Stetson as he plummets downward in a blaze of glory. So here we are as Kolk enters the bomb bay and tries to slide a big steel pin through the shackle. This safety pin would hold the bomb in place even if the shackle lets go. He has to reach way out of his comfort zone and just another couple of inches. Meanwhile, the big pig starts shaking and Kolka watches in terror as the bomb becomes unhinged from its shackle and he grabs hold of something. He initially couldn't remember what and then has to watch helplessly as the huge bomb breaks through the bomb bay doors and races downward toward the country patchwork below. 
What words would you have at a moment like that? Whatever he said couldn't be heard because of the roaring sound of the wind passing by and through that open Bombay door. According to more recent accounts, here's what really happened. The pin was released successfully as the plane took off. When the pilot's altimeter confirmed that he was flying at the designated altitude, he pulled the lever that, according to training and protocol, would reset the pin. He pulled the lever, but the pin didn't reset. He tried again. No result. So he ordered the bombardier navigator Kolka to the bomb bay. Kolka had to slip out of his parachute harness, meaning, obviously, that if anything went wrong, he'd be taken the fast way down. He had one hand on his oxygen cylinder, which he needed to carry so he could breathe. Remember, he was now 15,000 feet up. While he slithered into position, climbing across the top of the bomb that the bomb crews called Fat Boy. He had started at the tail and was climbing toward the nose near where the pin was located. The bomb was indeed fat and slippery. He had to hug it as he crawled, like a jockey without a saddle. He knew that if he could just get to the nose and see the harness, he could determine what was wrong. His fingers were cold at this altitude, and he was losing the feeling in his hands. All around him was the sound of the airplane's engines and the wind rushing by the bomb bay doors. Then, the worst of his nightmares happened. The cold metal pig shifted. Metal clinked on metal, and the bomb dropped a few inches, pressing against the bomb bay door, with Kolka still mounted on top of the bomb. The bomb bay doors opened about an inch further, and Kolka saw daylight now. Panic filled his brain and his body. He scrambled back, shimmied, and reached for something, anything in that bomb bay, and held on. The bomb bay doors opened further at that point, and Fat Boy suddenly left the station, heading toward Greg's farm, while Kulka hung on to a lever for dear life in the Bombay area. Back in the flight cabin, Captain Kohler heard a rumble, and a few seconds later, co-pilot Charles Woodruff noticed a shockwave radiating on the ground, and thought idly that it was just like a concussion wave from a bomb. But one or two seconds later, the truth hit him, and he recoiled. Woodruff turned to the captain. Oh my God, the bomb's deployed. Captain Kohler hit the switch close to the Bombay doors, and fortunately for Kolka, they closed. He called Kolka and got a response, albeit a shaky one. Kolka was getting hit with the cold realization that the pin he had reached for might actually have been the release lever. He was still shaking when he made his way into the tight bombardier's area and climbed back into his parachute harness. The captain reported to his flight leader, This is Garfield 13. I'm aborting the mission. Repeat, I'm aborting the mission. Then he explained what had happened. Orders came back to circle the area, taking pictures, which he did, as the sky was clear, and he and the crewmen watched helplessly as far below. Ambulances raced toward the epicenter where the bomb had hit. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Walter Gregg told reporters that he and his son had heard the B-47 flying overhead before the accident. Then a tremendous blast shook the earth under their feet. The air instantly became a whirlwind of dust and smoke. The noise of the blast reverberated through the surrounding trees, which acted sort of like tuning forks. The only thing I could figure was that the plane we had just heard had crashed. Greg charged out of the barn's work area to find his wife and daughters. His ears were ringing, and his eyes were smarting trying to see through the blowing dust. He felt a pain in his side and realized he had a deep cut under his arm. He remembers being worried that the propane tank standing beside the house was going to explode, 
and he wanted to collect everyone and get them away from the building. The blast had blown all the windows out of the house, and shattered glass was everywhere. At that moment, huge clods of earth which had been blown hundreds of feet into the air began returning to the earth, hitting the house, tearing through the roof of the house and the barn, threatening to collapse the house. Large chunks of falling earth also damaged some nearby homes and nearby Mount Pisba Baptist Church. Small pieces of dirt and rock were unavoidable. They literally rained down. Greg and his son, now bloody but still standing, joined Effie, just out front of the house. She had grabbed their children and their children's cousin and headed for the front yard and out of the range of the falling debris. Miraculously, the entire family had survived the TNT load that the bomb had carried, most of that being absorbed into the sides of the 75-foot-wide, 25-foot-deep crater which was now becoming visible in the backyard as neighbors rushed to aid the shocked family. Ambulances could now be heard rushing toward their neighborhood. The first person on the scene was a state trooper whose car had been blown off the road by the blast, and he had called it in. The Greg's entire family was taken to the local doctor's house, and he kept them overnight, stitching them up. The Greg's cousin, Ella Davies, stayed overnight at the hospital to get checked for internal bleeding and to have her face stitched up. Mr. Greg stayed with her that night, and it was while she was getting the last of her sutures that he was told what had actually happened at the farm. The Air Force sent radiation experts to confirm that no radiation was present in the area, and none was found. We came to be friends with the Air Force, William Gregg said, in an interview years later. One of them came and stayed with the family for a week, about 20 years ago. He also said the crew of the B-47 was transferred to overseas bases, and they wrote letters of apology to the family. Gregg guessed that their hasty transfer to posts overseas was because the Air Force didn't want them talking to reporters. He also said that he received a very different version of what had actually occurred in a letter from a crew member. Maybe, Greg said, he was trying to clear his conscience. He wrote that the co-pilot thought that the red warning light was just a glitch. He hit the light with the butt of his service revolver, and the light went off momentarily. When the red light returned, he figured something was wrong. The co-pilot went back to the bomb bay and discovered that the egg-shaped bomb wasn't locked in place. He pushed a button that he thought would engage the bomb lock, but it was the wrong button. Suddenly, the bomb bay doors opened, and the six-kiloton package fell towards the earth. When the pilot called in the mishap, he did it by the book, reporting that Broken Arrow had taken place. The personnel manning the radio at Hunter Air Force Base did not understand the code word, as it had never been used before. No one at Hunter responded to the radio transmission. Captain Kohler then called the tower at Florence County Airport and asked the operators there to send an open, uncoded message to Hunter Air Force Base that the aircraft 35-1876A had lost a device. A civilian pilot cleared to land at Florence, picked up the message, and the word got out from there. The captain knew he couldn't land nearby because he was overweight. He had too much fuel and didn't want to risk another accident so he flew over the impact area taking pictures of the damage until they had burned enough fuel to be able to land. You might remember how quick the Air Force was to shut down any reports of flying saucers in the Roswell story in the late 50s, but they were even quicker on March 11, 1958, to get to the press. Confirming only that an accident had occurred, they were extremely concerned with shutting down the news that, that was already leaking out. They headed straight for the Florence Morning News and demanded that all reports be immediately stopped and all pictures be handed over. 
They insisted that everyone cooperate due to the concern that there might be radioactive material at the site, so it was for the public good. The photographer, whose name was Kirkland, had raced to the scene with a buddy who had picked him up, saying, "'Get in and bring your camera,' and they raced toward the Greg's house. This pal was a Civil Air Patrol major, and he had heard the alert for all emergency vehicles in the area to get over to the Griggs' property at Marsh Bluff. On the way, Kirkland's friend, whose name was Richard Ward, told him that he had heard about the explosion from another friend who had been listening in on an FAA radio frequency, and that his friend had heard, and that his friend had actually heard the navigation bombardier's expletives that went along with his saying, I dropped it. Ward and Kirkland drove up toward Greg's property only to find it cordoned off, but Ward was wearing his Civil Air Patrol uniform and told the officials that he had been called there to help cordon off the area, and they were waved through. When they approached the Gregg property, they were shocked to see that it was devoid of people, no humans, military or civilian. Both men exited the car, closing the doors softly, not wanting any guards to show up to tell them to get lost. But no one did. Kirkland, a seasoned World War II photographer, shot frame after frame of the house and property, and their house did look like it had been hit by a bomb. The windows were all blown out, there was a hole blown right into the back of the house, and huge sections of siding had been torn off by the blast. But it was the huge falling chunks of debris that did the lion's share of the damage to the building's roof and the outbuildings. I've seen the pictures, and it looks like King Kong took a sledgehammer to the house and the outbuildings. Word stayed at the site, while Kirkland hitched a ride back to town so he could develop the pictures. This was before the age of digital cameras, and film had to be developed in a dark room in liquid-filled large pans. Kirkland was impatient. He knew that the Air Force would come busting in at any moment, and he wanted to see if the pictures were coming out. He didn't know until the pictures came out clear whether or not he'd been exposed to radiation. So he waited. Each minute seemed like an hour. He reached down with his toggles and jiggled a few of the prints, hoping they'd start developing. Then, as solid images surfaced, he breathed a huge sigh of relief, for a couple of reasons, one being that he could release the first story with pictures, and two, that the pictures didn't come out black, which he knew would mean that there was radiation involved. And for most people, being as close as he was would mean certain death. He then had the presence of mind to hide his negatives in a place that no searchers could find. When he got home that night, three wire services that had received his pictures called and asked him if he could get aerial shots, to which he gladly answered, Yes, that would pay well. Early the next morning, Kirkland made his way to the airport to see his friend, a pilot, and found him, only to find out that his plane was grounded and waiting inspection. Kirkland was walking back to his car dejected, his camera slung over his shoulder, when another guy Kirkland knew pulled up beside him and asked him if he wanted to go up with him and get some pictures. Kirkland, of course, said yes, and how soon? It turned out to be a single-engine Cessna 170, and it was a clear day. Kirkland got roll after roll of 4x5 film, shooting with the speed he normally used only for NASCAR car crash scenes at nearby Darlington. He was able to get enough shots that were different in order to satisfy the three news services, and then once the plane landed, rushed back to his darkroom. The pictures were snapped up by the news services, and the story went round the world in minutes. This was one incident that the Air Force wasn't going to be able to cover up, Within hours of Kirkland's developing the aerial photos, the Air Force entered the newspaper building demanding that all the photographs be turned over. And they turned them over. Curiously, the Air Force never asked for the negatives. 
The Air Force paid the Greggs $57,000 for damages, and the incident, thanks to the fact that there were no fatalities, quickly disappeared from the public consciousness. That amount, by the way, didn't come close to the value of what they had lost, and they had very little money with which to start their lives over when they finally moved to Florence. Had the nuclear rod been inserted in the bomb, it would have cleared out everything within a 10-mile radius and spread radiation through Horry County and Wilmington, North Carolina. But it didn't, and the Air Force took precautions to try and make sure it never would. Greg and his family, feeling that they had about used up their luck at that house, moved to Florence soon after, and someone else bought the farm. Vegetation soon covered the deep pit, and the pit eventually filled with water. If you're driving west along 301 headed for Columbia, there's a little Baptist church and a service station located close to Marsh Bluff. You can stop and ask if they know where the house is that took the bomb blast back in the 50s. But the chances are, the guy behind the register won't know what the heck you're talking about. It's a pretty much forgotten incident. Now, if you're like me, and in many ways you are because you listen to this show, you're thinking that if there was one incident involving a potential nuclear accident, there may have been more. And you'd be right. There were 32 incidents involving the U.S. and the loss of nuclear devices between 1950 and 1980 alone. The 50s were the deadliest times for nuclear mishaps. In January of 1950, a B-36 carrying a nuclear payload off the coast of British Columbia developed mechanical difficulties at 12,000 feet, then started icing up, requiring them to drop their payload in the Pacific. They saw a blinding flash of light before bailing out over Princess Royal Island. Later, the plane went down on Vancouver Island. In April of 1950, a B-29 taking off from Kirkland in New Mexico crashed into a mountain three minutes after taking off, killing the crew. The recovered components of the weapon were later returned to the Atomic Energy Commission. In July of 1950, a B-50 flying out of Biggs Air Force Base, Texas, crashed, killing four officers and 12 crewmen. The high explosives detonated on impact, but there was no nuclear device found on the aircraft. In August of 1950, a B-29 crashed in California on takeoff from Fairfield Suisun Air Force Base and caught on fire. Nineteen crew members and rescue personnel were killed when the high-explosives bomb went off as they were fighting the fire. In November of 1950, a B-50 flying over the ocean had an in-flight emergency and had to jettison a weapon over the ocean. A high-explosive detonation was observed. And so on, all through the fabulous 50s. There were a lot of crashes involving bombers. Here are two interesting stories taken from Department of Defense declassified files involving nuclear accidents in the 60s. The first is known as the Goldsboro, North Carolina B-52 crash. In the early morning of January 20, 1961, a B-52 bomber carrying two Mark 39 nuclear weapons crashed near Goldsboro, North Carolina. The aircraft was part of a SAC mission designed to keep a significant number of bombers in the air at one time, so that in the event of a Soviet first strike, they would not be damaged or destroyed sitting on runways. Sounds like someone at the top remembered MacArthur in the Philippines. This operation required those B-52s to be refueled in mid-air, which then was a very dangerous procedure. At midnight on January 23rd, the B-52 rendezvoused with a tanker to refuel. The tanker crew observed that the B-52 was leaking fuel from its right wing, and this is an interesting point for those of you who don't know much about planes. In most planes, the fuel is stored in the wings. 
The weight of the fuel provides rigidity for the wings, thereby reducing wing vibration, what they call flutter, which can cause a collapse of the wings. Using wet wings, as this method is called, also gives the plane a good center of gravity, so it can't tip forward or backward. The plane's pilot was instructed to assume a holding position until enough fuel was lost in order that he could land and let them check out the problem. But the leak rapidly worsened. The plane started to descend, and soon the pilots could not control the aircraft. The crew attempted to eject, and five were able to get out, but three of the crew couldn't make it. Somehow, two three-and-a-half megaton bombs were released before the crash. One of the bombs fell straight down and crashed into a muddy field at the rate of 700 miles per hour, burying the weapon deep underground. After a long search, its tail was found 20 feet below the surface. A complete excavation was impossible, because although much of its nuclear material was recovered, as the report goes, some uranium remains at that crash site where, it is said, the U.S. Air Force performs a regular inspection even today to test for radioactive contamination. We'll get to bomb number two in a moment. So many questions arise. Why was this bomb radioactive? Why was the retrieval effort abandoned? One answer I found in research was that at one point, the United States Air Force decided to include the plutonium rod in the pit of the bombs during all flights. The second weapons landing incident remains loaded with controversy to this day. The second bomb's parachute opened. Yes, they were fitted with parachutes by that time. When the parachute opened, that indicated that the arming sequence had been initiated, but the parachute got stuck high in a tree, and the bomb was left hanging. Wouldn't that have been a sight for some boys out squirrel hunting? One report indicated that the bomb was not armed because the pilot had shut off the arm switch before jumping. Later, Secretary of Defense Robert T. McNamara reported that by the slightest margin of chance, literally the failure of two wires to cross, a nuclear explosion in North Carolina was averted. We'll never know exactly how close it was, and I never could find where the plane actually went down. A road marker titled a nuclear mishap still stands in the little town of Eureka, North Carolina. So that's probably the answer. A really bad incident took place in 1966 in Palomares, Spain, on the morning of January 17, 1966, when a B-52 bomber carrying four Mark 28 hydrogen bombs collided with a KC-135 refueling aircraft over Palomares, Spain. Again, this exercise was part of Operation Chrome Dome, intended to keep nuclear-armed planes in the air in order to provide the U.S. with first-strike capability. Side note, in my ten years as a fishing and hunting rep, I spent about a year servicing Army Air Force exchanges in New England, New York, and New Jersey, and I recall working some of the exchanges which were located on what was then called the Dew Line, our defense early warning system, which guarded us from a nuclear attack during the Cold War, when you never knew what tricks Russia was going to serve up. Some of those exchanges were B-52 bases, like Griffiths Air Force Base in New York and Lorien Air Force Base in Maine, and it was impressive seeing those airfields packed with those huge B-52 bombers. Those bases, I think, are closed now, no longer needed with our modernized military. Back to Spain, the B-52 collided with the tanker's fueling boom, and at that point, according to one of the survivors, all hell broke loose. The collision caused an explosion that ignited the tanker, killing all four crew members on board. The B-52 started to break apart, and its unarmed nuclear payload, which consisted of four 1.5 megaton bombs, was released 
three fell to the ground, while one dropped into the Mediterranean Sea. Of the seven crew members aboard, four were ejected safely, while three were killed. A local villager recounted, I looked up and saw this huge fireball falling to the sky. The two planes were breaking into pieces. Luckily, although debris fell all over the city of Palomares, no one was killed. Within 24 hours of the collision, U.S. servicemen as well as disaster control teams located, secured, and recovered the three hydrogen bombs that fell on land. Only one had deployed its parachute. A huge search took place for the fourth bomb, which had landed in the med, before it was finally found and loaded aboard the petrol. That recovery was dramatized in the film Men of Honor, starring Cuba Gooding and Robert De Niro. The cleanup on land took months, as the bombs had released plutonium, which tells us that by 1966 they were including the nuclear payload in the bomb while in flight, at least over Europe. More than 1,400 tons of soil across 650 acres of land was sent to an approved storage facility in Aiken, South Carolina. Lucky Aiken. And medical treatment centers were set up to monitor residents who had been exposed to radiation. It was a costly mess, and it ended up costing U.S. taxpayers tens of millions, and we're still cleaning it up today. Which brings to light the question, if the U.S. can pay for mistakes they've made and damage they've caused overseas, why can't China be forced to pay for the Wuhan virus, which they caused? In Toole, Greenland, in 1968, a B-52 crashed on an ice-covered bay near Toole Air Base, where four nuclear weapons broke up, scattering radioactive materials widely. One lone crew member was killed. Much has been improved since the 50s and 60s, and accidents are rare now. First, nuclear weapons are never carried on training flights. The airborne alert system was terminated in 1968 due to accidents such as those we've just described. Along with the rising cost of maintaining a portion of the SAC bomber force constantly on airborne alert, and the advent of a responsive and survivable intercontinental ballistic missile force, which now includes our U.S. Navy. I hope you enjoyed this story and discovered some new information. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Please take a moment and send us those reviews. We appreciate them very much. And also, please consider joining us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Our supporters at Patreon pledge a few dollars each month to help keep us going to 2001. Till next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, everyone. Take care, and we'll be back soon.